0: Today my guest is Robert Cook, the founder of 3Forge, a provider of data virtualization and visualization technology solutions. In this conversation, Robert shares his origin story of how he got interested in computers even when he was a kid and how he liked to build things, whether it was in Lego or woodwork, and discovering that he could do a lot more building with software at much lesser cost developing video games and accounting software, and also helping manage things in college with software solutions. When he took up a job in the Silicon Valley in the 2000s, he realized that data is very important, and the four Vs, as he calls them, for data, which is about the volume, the velocity of change, the variety, as well as the validity of data. And that idea grew into this company, 3Forge, later, which he started in 2012. He talks about a lot of things, how, at heart, he confesses that uh, he is a coder. Whenever he gets a chance, he would do that even for 10, 12 hours a day. And he also talks some things about the software engineering compared to other disciplines of engineering, particularly electrical engineering, where he also has a certificate about having something like the National Electric Code in the US for software so that it becomes easier for everyone to adopt and everyone to build based on certain standards. And uh, the process of working on somebody else's code and how it's very hard to get rid of code that already exists and how it could also be a therapeutic process. We talk about how he balances his engineering thinking and the artist thinking. He calls developing software as an art and how he balances maintainability as well. Listen on. Hi, Robert. Welcome to the Software People Stories.
1: Hi, Shiv. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, as we normally do, we'll start with your origin story and your career trajectory and to take the conversation from there. I actually am looking forward to this conversation, particularly after we had a brief chat the other day uh, about your interest in coding and all the lessons that you've learned that would be useful for our listeners.
1: Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um so I have been into computers all my life. Well, at least my, my memorable life. So even when I was a little kid, you know, the first thing I'd ask for every year for Christmas was a computer. And, you know, back in the early 80s, that was uh, a tall order to ask for. Um, you know, I was also and, and I think what really got me into computers to step back a little bit, I was I was into Legos and I was into building things. I just love building anything. In fact, my hobbies are like woodworking, stuff like that. But I've always been into building stuff. And the, but the problem is I realized if I wanted to build bigger and more interesting and more impactful things, it costs more money. So if I wanted more Lego sets, that costs more money. Mm-hmm. But, but I realized with computers, because I, I could get some time sharing at school, and I, and I realized that you don't need more money to build more interesting software. You know, and, that, and that's, I think, the great equalizer about computers is that you know, it really is you against the machine. And so I, I got into computers at a very, very young age. Um, I, you know, I started off, I think doing what a lot of kids do. I was in, I was into video games in the early eighties. So I was building video games. Then I started doing accounting software and, and I started doing stuff to kind of help manage things in our college. And then just kind of wherever I was, I was finding problems I was interested in. And I, and I was, um, and I was coming up with software solutions for that. Not really thinking about how to monetize software. That was a dream of mine, but it was just more about being able to build stuff. Um, and, and my parents would always complain, you know, that I would just Come home every day and say is there any software you guys need is there anything you can think of because coming up with problems <laughs> you know was was is, like if you want to build a new piece of software but it's like what can i do what can i do um and then in 2000 uh so so just step back
0: oh, yeah was this on the atari's and the trs80s or
1: no i had a, a very PC? unusual computer called an amstrad but it, it was ah. an ibm pc compatible yeah um it's it's a uk based manufacturer. I think they're out of business now. I think they've been out of business for like 15, 20 years, but, or maybe they got bought by someone, but anyways, it was, it was an IBM compatible 8086. I think my first one had just a few K of memory. So it was, you know, it was a very small by today's, I mean, it was incidental by today's standards, but still, and in fact, I could probably spend a whole hour talking about how training on a computer with 128 K of memory teaches you to respect, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like not waste memory and not waste CPU cycles. But that's another thing. Yeah, so so it was a classic PC. I've always been kind of a, a PC guy. I love Unix, but I've, I've kind of stuck with the Intel series and AMD series, Cyrix um, for time. Anyways, so we are, uh, so let's see here. So now we're in 2000. I'm out in Silicon Valley um, working for some companies out there. And then I, uh, I got a job at Bear Stearns in 2000. And I kind of going into it, you know, I thought it'd be a pretty boring sort of job in finance, where you know you kind of like software developers go to die, like you just go and you sit in a corner and you're writing code that moves a message from here to there and debits and credits, account balances, and and it actually turned out to be an unbelievably fascinating set of challenges. Um, and I've 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 summarized it as the four V's, and and I I've said this for a long time, and now I found it's actually a thing on the internet. Someone searched it and it exists. But I, I still, I don't know how, if it's coincidental, but I came up with this a long time ago, the four Vs, oh, okay. which is you have very high volume of data. right? You have a very high velocity of data. Everything's moving quickly. You have a huge variety of data because you have all these different asset classes. And then the validity of data is absolutely critical. So I call it the four Vs. And when you take those four together, you want huge amounts of data that can move very fast, but everything has to be perfectly accurate. And there's tons of different types of data. Well, that set me set me off on my career. Um, and and then in the rest of my you know in the last twenty three years have or I would say last because it took a few years to kind of get into it. I would say the last fifteen years has been focused on how do I try to solve that problem in a generic way. So here we are at this podcast.
0: Yeah, oh, wonderful. Um, so the initial initiation that you had into software, you said, was about looking for problems to solve. Uh-huh. So was there some method behind it or how do you go about converting, uh, identifying a problem and then identifying a solution and then implementing it?
1: Sure. Well, that's that's a great topic. So, and this has been, I think, a lifelong journey that you just get better and better at. Um, as you write more software. And by the way, I should say I, I, I'm a self self-proclaimed uh, software addict. I, I write code 10 to 12 hours a day for as long as I can remember, I write it on planes, I write it on chains. If I have a laptop, I will write code anywhere I am. In fact, I was saying before, I promised myself I wouldn't write code on podcasts anymore because, <laughs> you know, I don't want to get distracted if there are interesting questions that I'm trying to. Code. Okay. But with that said, um, you know, when you start off in the beginning and you have a problem to solve, or you come up with the problem, and I'm not gonna talk about coming up with the problem. Cause that really was just bugging people and kind of, you know what I mean? Just kind of, I, I, I don't know. That's a, that's a separate thing. That's kind of getting into just kind of socializing and, and stuff like that. But let's say we have a problem now that we want to solve in the beginning. I would take a very brute force approach, which was, I knew the problem and I knew how what the solution was and I would write the code in a very straightforward way I'll give you an example um, we had a we had a club um, in the in you know when I was like in my early teens and in this club we had like you know you we kind of did things to raise money for the club and so we had like you could go and buy sodas and buy candy bars and buy different things and when you bought that um, we had a little laptop set up and I wrote some software so that like when you bought a candy bar you'd like hit candy bar and when you bought a soda you'd be soda and this and that The software itself, I literally had variables for like storing the number of sodas and the number of candy bars and the number of various other treats that people would buy. And it was very hard coded. So -hmm. if I wanted to introduce a new item, I had to go and change the software. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, as a little kid, to me, I didn't, you know, I didn't really think about that. It was like, okay, well, I've gotten something that works. But as you get older, you start to realize, well, you know, you want to make this more generic. And so I think naturally, you know, anyone who's, you know, been coding for even just a a small period of time would realize, well, what you're going to do is you're going to make that more generic where, you know, you have an item and then you have a a list of the different items. So now you can add an item to that list and you don't need to go changing your code. Instead, you have lookup tables and things like that. Um, But then you you solve it that way. Then you start to realize later on, it's like, well, maybe, you know, there's unforeseen types of transactions people are going to want to do. So you want to make that generic. So you keep, I think over time, you learn to look at the problem head on, but then you start to think where is this going to evolve and where can it be used in other ways? And how can I build the software more generic so it can have more applicability? Um, at least that's what I love to do. I love to try to come up with, I would say, generic solutions, data agnostic solutions. And that's why I started 3Forge in 2012. So, you know, I guess we've, we haven't really introduced the company yet. Um, We have offices in three countries, um, New York, we're also in London, and we have an office in Singapore. Um, Many of the largest tier one banks rely on our software for those four four Vs that I talked about. But at the end of the day, the software that we deliver to our customers, it's the same software we give to all of our customers, it's a single branch of code. And I think very remarkably, it's solved many, many different use cases. And that's really just an outcropping of what I was talking about at the beginning, which is I try to take all the different problems I've seen in finance and distill it down to fundamentals um, and 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 you know core principles, and then from there try to then build it back up into what does a generic solution look like that finance can use, and that to me is the holy grail, you know. And and the beauty is, I think um, that. One of the coolest things about software is, I've been writing software. I, I I've definitely clocked at least a hundred thousand hours. There's no no doubt about hmm. that. Probably probably more. And if you do the math, that's that's a lot of hours. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but I still can go back and look at code I wrote a year ago and say, what was I doing? I could definitely make this better. And to me maybe i'm just i was just such a bad coder in the beginning that it's taken this long to build it up but i actually think the the but i like to be a little more positive and think that anyone <clears throat> if you take the art form seriously you just keep getting better and better and better at it until you retire that that's that's my belief and i love that idea that it's something that you can keep improving you know i think a lot of industries you start to taper off
0: yeah this uh i'll come back to a few key words that you probably mentioned. But before that, in terms of uh, being a developer and your own transition and then how you kind of grew, we normally talk about one big S-curve or a transition from being an individual contributor to achieving things as a team, Mm -hmm. or what we call as uh, programming in the small to programming in the large. How was that transition for
1: you? I think it's I think it's been somewhat organic, and I will say that what is so much fun about working in a team is if the team I, I hate to be to be a little belittling here, but if the team is competent, right? So at Three Forge, I've been able to hire the team and very selectively make sure I'm hiring the the people that I like to work with. Um, but I think. The great thing about working with the team of developers is you get this different sort of insight into how things are done. Um, and I love working with smart people where they can sometimes help me solve a problem or I can give them classes of problem, they can work on it. Um, I also think once you start writing software that's intended for team members to be able to contribute to, you have to be a lot more organized And um, I would say rational in the way you put things together. Let's put it this way. You know, if I was building software and I didn't think anyone would ever have to maintain it, you could probably take a lot of shortcuts in your naming conventions and things like Mm -hmm. that. Um, And I'm not going to get into documentation. That's another topic. But, um, you know, I think once you realize this has got to be something that can be maintained over time by a team of people, naming becomes very important. making logical architecture decisions is important and and those sorts of things. Um, I do think one of the things I've had to focus on, and I think I've done a very good job of it because I've seen the alternative, is that I have I'm not I, I have almost with an iron fist said this is the structure and organization of how code will be written. I'm not going to okay. say it's right mm-hmm. and I'm not going to say it's wrong, but it's consistent. And, and I think that's something that a lot of teams don't do. And and mm. and it's almost, it's the problem's almost getting exacerbated, which is this idea that anyone comes in and they contribute and they can, can do it in any way they want. I think people are creating a lot of technical debt. Again, I could talk mm. a long time about <laughs> what I believe and, and how detrimental technical debt is to large organizations. But I think that through a little bit of discipline, um, it it goes a very very long way, um, and and I can make analogies all over the place. And you know, most industries have those disciplines baked in. By the way, you know, I mentioned in the beginning, I love doing woodworking. I also took my homeowner's electrical exam, so I can do, you know, work around the house and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And once you start to get into that, you realize that there's at least in the United States there's something called this NEC code, and it's very spelled out as to what you do. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? The black is, is hot. The nice. white is neutral. The you know the 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 green or the um, uninsulated is is your ground. You don't switch the white and black okay. when you lay it out. You use these types of staples, and everything is 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 done and organized and controlled because over the hundreds of years they've done this to stop literal fires from breaking out. Right? I mean, you want you want to organize this stuff. It makes for a safer environment. It makes it, and it also makes for an environment where people become a lot more fungible. Mm-hmm. That just hasn't existed in in software so much. You know, I mean, there's really no, there's nothing stopping you from deciding whether you're going to camel hump uh, the the case sensitivity on your on your variable names
0: mm-hmm. or this or
1: that. But following those conventions makes it makes it much easier. Um, and I know this is a, a it seems like a, a minute part of working in a team. But I think it's a really, really big part because I've seen teams where you bring in new people that have their own ideas how to do things, ends up creating a lot of problems with best yeah. intentions.
0: Yeah. So have there been instances when, let's say you look at somebody else's code to review and this urge to do a control A and delete?
1: Um, well, not just an urge. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will, I will. Yeah. will. I will absolutely. Actually, what I've said, one of my favorite things to do is get rid of code. I mean, getting rid of code is like, uh, it's really hard to do. It's mm-hmm. very hard to get rid of code, but it's yeah. such a therapeutic sort of process. Because mm-hmm. um, in fact, I, I'll, let me put it this way. I One thing I've realized in, in, in much of life, and I can make this analogy all over the place, which is inserting or creating is actually the easiest. Mm. Updating or modifying is harder. And and getting rid of or deleting is extremely mm. difficult. Mm. You know? Um, so when I see code and I can do a control A and delete, I will. Now I think your question is slightly different, which is have I ever looked at code that was so bad I said you need to start over? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. all all the time. Which is fine, you know, because yeah. look, you want to do things the best you can. Um and, and, and let me let me just let me just prefix one more thing. It would depend on the case, like if we're just trying to write a quick ends to a mean sort of script that's going to test something, eh, I don't, I don't care too much if it's mm-hmm. got a lot of extra for loops and things aren't done that efficiently, and you know we're we're throwing and building strings all over the place, whatever. If it's something that's going to go into our core product, oh yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna focus and and delete yeah. it if I don't like it. Yeah, yeah.
0: So the related question is, uh, in terms of. Uh, probably the softer side, when you feel that urge, usually, and I've also been through this where if I've not written it, saying I could have written it better, as a leader, we'll probably touch upon that a little more, I'm curious about, your transition from a developer to a leader. But before that, when you have this urge to look at code and say that this needs to be replaced, and how do you respond? How do you react?
1: Uh, Oh, you mean, I guess you're talking about in order to make people not, feel feel bad I guess is really what we're talking about to do it in a, in a uh, sensitive uh, way right and not um,
0: that is one aspect the other is also about an opportunity for them to learn from your experience
1: right. yeah that's exactly right that's yeah. that's how I look at it and you know I would never I never just go and delete somebody's code because of well the I mean the reason I delete somebody's code is because I it, it's either not performant or I don't think it is done correctly or I don't think it is maintainable. You know, it's gonna be one of those. So I spell out the reason clearly. Um, and then I give and then I try to give examples. I, I believe in something called managing through interfaces. Interfaces mm-hmm. is, is a Java term, yeah. right? Like, you know, you're 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 kind of giving the contract of the code, but not the mm-hmm. implementation. Um, and so you know, if if I see someone struggling, I'll try to help them manage through interfaces, which is look, now, you know, cause usually it's it's when I see, because again, I try to hire pretty qualified people. So when there is issues, it's usually because there isn't an understanding or a clear delineation of the inputs or outputs, or kind of like, where is the where are we drawing the line in the sand in terms of isolation? And so I kind of will say, look, let's think about what the interface should look like. What are the inputs? What are the outputs? And then they can go implement it. You know, but honestly, if they can't write a for loop or they can't write the basic code that gets things done, then that's a different problem. But that's not usually yeah. the case, you know. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> the other one was, uh, did I hear you say that software development is an art?
1: Absolutely. I, I think it okay. is totally an art. Yes.
0: <laughs> so uh, you also mentioned that you would like to tinker with things and including your electrical certification and all that, which is more of a an engineer's mindset, I would say. Uh, right. How do you balance uh, the two styles?
1: Oh no, it's a great it's a great question. I think about that a lot. So first off, I, I am on all these electric electrician um uh forums. I mm-hmm. don't know why I, I belong <laughs> they just yell at each other all day about doing stuff wrong. But um it is interesting because there's even a little bit of I would say a little bit of creativity when you're doing um now I'm talking about like high power systems, not like mm. residential. Um, and and i would also say by the way there isn't a whole lot of art to software if all you're doing is like a script to like load data in a batch or something you know i'm I'm trying to trivialize here but you know a lot of things yeah it's more just formulaic same thing with residential Mm -hmm. electric it's it's fairly formulaic you have your little you know single double gang boxes you've got your circuit breaker you've got the wires you've got the you know and, but, but there's still plenty, plenty, some creativity there. But when you get into the more high-powered things, that's where creativity comes in. And the same thing with building abstract software. Now, I would say with software, it really is an art form because there's so many ways, just so many ways to solve the same problem. And to me, the great, the, the big gotcha about software is it's this balance and I can tell you where I lean, but there's this balance between maintainability of the software, meaning how easy for someone to come in and maintain it, um, how much time does it take you to write the software, and, and how well does the software perform, meaning the better it performs, inversely, the less resources it needs to get its job done. And now you struggle, like this, this, this perpetual struggle of which, of when you're writing something, you've got to ask how core is it, and, and, and which of these three are you going to focus on? And that's where the art comes in, I think, yeah.
0: Yeah. So in terms of developing your team, what do you stress more on? Is it the RT side or the engineer side?
1: I Okay, this is where I'm going to deviate from what I would necessarily recommend to other people. And other people are going to have to make their own decisions. I consider myself pretty good at the art form now just mm-hmm. through all the struggles, trials and tribulations and making every mistake you can possibly make. I have a pretty good idea of how to architect systems generally speaking, what's right, what's wrong what's secure, what's not secure, what performs well and what doesn't. So what I look for, which helps balance out um, or or helps me, is I look for people with strong math backgrounds and strong mm-hmm. logic, logic backgrounds. I, I've hired people that don't know how to code if they really are good at math and, okay. and or they're really good at logic, right? mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, and so those are, those are things I look for. And again, I can't say that's what everyone should do, but as a manager, I have a pretty good idea of how I wanna lay out the system. And I'm looking for people to help me do the work of getting these things done. And so, um, so that's an important thing. I will say another thing that, uh, that I look for is problem solving hmm. you know and interestingly someone else told me this long time ago and, and i've thought about it and thought about it the more i think about it, it's absolutely correct i think the hardest part of of software is actually debugging someone else's code if i were to do absolutely. if i were to if yeah. if i were to interview i think actually asking hey here's a, here's a thing of code here's a debugger go figure out what's happening you know what i mean mm-hmm. i think that's a very interesting because it forces I will say that's actually something GP chat, mm-hmm. GPT chat, mm-hmm. GPT chat is getting very good at, very different topic, but it's something that as a human, we have to all of a sudden be able to place and understand and read through this, someone else's kind of foreign concepts, bring that in and then be able to solve it. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, this is probably uh, also a nice segue into uh, from being a developer. You now, what was the bug that bit you to start The company. The answer to that and a lot more in the next episode. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.